clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us this morning for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 35th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming, co-founder and managing partner at My Next Season and Project U, Dr. Leslie W. Bratzik, and CEO of Sumas Global, Julian Flannery. If you're unable to stay with us for the entire duration of today's program, a replay will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. With that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thanks very much, Tom, and good morning to our clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, colleagues, and other friends of Rockefeller, and welcome, as Tom said, to the 35th in our series, our client series that we began way back in April 2020. It's my great pleasure uh, to have, uh, as Tom said, with us uh, two uh, pioneering uh, and uh, transformative CEOs running very interesting businesses that are also partners of Rockefeller and available to their services are available to our clients through our Rockefeller Lifestyle Advisory Program. So we're quite pleased to have this dialogue. Uh, this is uh, uh, with uh, two uh, firms that are uh, partners of, uh, of Rockefeller Capital Management. So as Tom said, first, uh, Leslie Braxick. Uh, and I'm going to have Leslie and Julian talk about their businesses uh, directly. So I won't get into what they're doing now and what we're partnering with them at Rockefeller Capital Management, but I do want to talk about uh, their history because both of them have had, uh, and obviously not over, uh, fantastic careers to this point. So prior to starting my next season in Project U, which Leslie's going to get into in a second, Leslie co-founded and led the Continuous Learning Group, personally consulting to its senior most clients for 21 years. She's, published, uh, she's a published author of books and articles on matters of leadership, and transitions. She recently co-authored Living Into Your Next Season, Moving Forward After the Crisis of 2020, and Your Next Season, Advice for Executives on Transitioning from Intense Careers to Fulfilling Next Seasons. I'm looking for that advice, but not quite yet. Um, but uh, a lot of what Leslie does is clearly relevant to the changing and dynamic workplace environment that we're all operating in. Uh, Leslie holds a doctorate in applied behavioral science and a master's degree in industrial organizational psychology and public health. She currently serves on the uh, Children's Hospital Pittsburgh Board, chair of the Southwestern Pennsylvania American Red Cross Tiffany Circle, and she previously served on the Princeton Theological Seminary Board for more than 15 years. Leslie is clearly also giving back in her community. Julian Flannery has had a, a terrific career, as I said, uh, and it is still in flight. Um, he served on the management team and was a managing director at, uh, uh, of global research at Gerson Lehman Group, which as everybody knows is the world's largest membership-based platform for professional expertise. He oversaw GLG's service operation, products and content, and directed management of its 400,000 plus expert membership base. He also worked at one of my alma maters, Morgan Stanley, as associate and chief of staff to the then chairman and CEO, one before me, or one before the one I worked for, uh, and in special situations and investment banking. So Julian comes from a world that uh, many of us at Rockefeller were at. In 2001, he served at the White House as an aide to the chief of staff of the president. He's got an MBA from Harvard Business School and his bachelor's in economics from Duke University. Uh, Leslie and Julian, welcome. It's terrific to have you here today. Thank you. 
Thank you. So I, as promised, I would like to start, uh, and typically I'll, I'll paraphrase, but I stay away from that here because um, you're running uh, interesting and uh, as I said, transformative businesses on the cutting edge of what's happening in people's lives, which is why I think this is a particularly relevant program for our clients and our colleagues at Rockefeller. But Leslie, uh, why don't you start by talking about exactly what my next season and Project U are and do uh, and again, uh, their their service is available to clients of uh, Rockefeller. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Um, we we uh, we started my next season really um, with a, a pretty narrow focus on career transitions. Uh, what we know is those are very fragile times for companies and for individuals, and that's really our area of expertise. Whether they're um, it's young people transitioning from college into first jobs or first jobs into leadership jobs or the far end of the continuum, which is where the firm started, which is really um, helping executives navigate um, career transitions to their next seasons. Um, I don't really know what retirement means. I don't know that it's applicable in our world anymore, but what we know is that our, our clients are doing incredible things um, you know, both within and outside the organizations when that is approached with intentionality and, and thoughtful preparation to the benefit of both the individuals and the company. So our clients tend to be very progressive companies like Rockefeller that understand the importance of that. And um, so Rockefeller, we have we are so excited because we're working with your um, high net worth individuals, the children of those individuals, and they have access to our services, both in the for college students and for early career professionals. So gaining clarity on the career, what do you want to do and gaining the skills to secure internships and jobs and to get unstuck when you feel unstuck and find purpose in your work. So we are thrilled to be working with Rockefeller in that way. Well, we're, we're very pleased to uh, to have the partnership with you and, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this with with you and Julian, but it is uh, a very fast changing world here in terms of workplace and jobs and how people transition in, in and out of jobs and, and what they're looking for in jobs and yeah. you know, what what motivates individuals. And as you said, you know, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the generations that a little bit farther along nobody really wants to talk about retirement because you're looking for a stimulating motivating life it might be different than what you had as uh you know in a corporate environment but you you know you're not just checking out and and then retirement comes it, it, it's just not something that's as, as thought of as as broadly in society as it used to so there's many different interesting uh threads that we're going to pursue here but let me go to julian and have him talk about uh, sumas uh, uh and then we'll go into the dialogue yeah, thanks, Greg. Really, really nice to be here, and uh, Leslie, nice to be sitting on a panel with with you as well. I, I enjoy learning from you. Um, so, Sumus is a you know you start with GLG. We're a, we're a virtual care company. Um, you know, we're we're uh, squarely in the in the digital health space. Uh, we we focus in specialty care. Um, so, sort of concretely, what we've built is a, a tech-enabled platform that has attracted uh, leaders in medicine across the United States. Uh, today, we have a network about. Uh, 4,000 leading doctors across 48 top hospitals. Increasingly, uh, we're building the network internationally. Um, and we use a business model, which is a marketplace model, uh, where we effectively um, change the way people can access high quality medical expertise, uh, really underlining the concept of speed and access. 
Um, you know, the, the simplistic way to think about us is, is really a digital front door to high quality specialty care. Uh, and I'll get into uh, the, the membership offering that we, that we offer to uh, Rockefeller clients. Uh, but we really work with uh, sort of three dimensions. One is employers. So we work, we help employers uh, take care of the employees with really high quality healthcare. Uh, we help them also uh, drive down costs uh, because there's a very clear line between accessing high quality expertise and making uh, better, more cost efficient decisions. Uh, and then for employees, we make we we try to take the complexity out of out of healthcare. We we connect them with leading doctors really across any health question. Uh, could be allergies, could be weight management, could be mental health, all the way up to ALS and cancer. And that, of course, includes the dependence around them. Uh, so that's an important piece of, of what we do. Uh, and then third, we work with top uh, academic medical centers, health systems. Uh, we, we've repurposed our platform as a SaaS platform uh, to really power their specialist programs. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about how the changing uh, face of, of sort of virtual care is, is driving all those, those changes. But, you know, with regard to Rockefeller, uh, we do have a consumer-based uh, membership uh, really designed around the family and the extended family. Uh, we have thousands of members all around the world uh, that are that are members of Sumis, and and really the core value is you know access to high-quality doctors very quickly from anywhere in the world. Um, and you know we we're proud to be working with Rockefeller, you know blue chip firm, uh, tremendous people, tremendous clients, and and we're uh, we're proud to proud to be here. So thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you, and I appreciate the description, Blue Chip, and, and Leslie said uh, progressive uh, and leading edge, so we're doing well so far on the Rockefeller front. Um, Julian, uh, I want to start with you, though, on the theme that you just kind of kicked off, because um, the pandemic has, uh, and, and I'm watching this and reading about it as, uh, you know, an armchair observer, you're the expert, but uh, medical care uh, of all kinds has been massively influenced by the pandemic. The move to telemedicine, uh, you know, it must be orders of magnitude greater than it was before the pandemic. And now the pandemic is hopefully uh, behind us in the sense that uh, people are not able to go in and see a physician. What's what what has changed, and and what's secular? What will be here, you know, in, in, you know, for the foreseeable future? You know, if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, uh, look, I mean, I, I remember going into heads of HR and business leaders and saying, hey, this virtual thing is really cool and describing our business. And, they, you know, they're, they're saying, well, why don't I just walk down the street? And, and you know, what COVID did was just radically accelerate the, the virtual care industry. Uh, you know, something that probably would have taken 10 to 12 years took a year. Right. And, and, you know, the the telehealth market, I mean, you look at the McKinsey numbers today, it's about a 40 billion dollar market, uh, you know, in five years, it's going to be or, or, yeah, in, in four years, it's going to be a, a 200 billion dollar market. Right. So but here's the really interesting piece of, of the puzzle. Uh, if you look at the data, uh, you know, any radical transformation, if, if things come back to normal, if, if people don't like the new behavior, it'll snap back. But what's ended up happening here is the three primary players, consumers, employers, and and uh, and health systems and physicians, all actually, you know, up north of 75% uh, when surveyed say that they are going to include virtual care in their workflows, in their benefits offerings, and 76% of consumers 
are actually going to use virtual care post COVID, right? Why is that? It's super efficient. It's it's uh, it's you know we found great efficiencies and you know there's downsides to to not being in person, but uh, the video medium is really powerful. So. Um, you know, the number one uh, in 2021, the number one priority for employers was adding virtual care offerings. Um, and, and, and then, you know, on the employee side, you know, especially as we think about either work from home or flexibility, uh, you know, CEOs and, and, you know, heads of HR are really thinking about how do they design healthcare around the flexible employee. And that's a, you know, that's a really interesting thing uh, to think about. And we're, you know, obviously perfectly positioned to, to support those efforts. Um, Julian, the 76%, what was that pre-pandemic? So 76% of people are are uh, happy to use telemedicine for various kinds of services. What, was it a third? I mean, what was that? In, in it, was, it, was at, it was at 12%, Greg. 12%, that's unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. And But the important piece is the physician side. Greater than 80% of physicians will make it part of their workflows on a go-forward basis, right? I mean, I remember, you know, some of the, you know, professor-level academic medical, you know, doctors who, you know, at HSS or MD Anderson, oh, I don't need to do that virtual thing. They love it now. Highly efficient. They can connect with their, with their patients in a way that they feel really great about. Uh, and remember, you can transcend boundaries. Right. You can you can talk to doctors on the West Coast, on the East Coast, internationally. You can you can speak to incredible doctors. Uh, so it really breaks down barriers to to accessing high quality care. Are, are there areas um, are there different specialties that are likely to become almost 100 percent or you know some high percentage telemedicine and then other areas where people are still reluctant to talk about it on a screen? Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be use cases for for in-person care, right? I mean, that's that's just a fact. But here's a data point for you. Uh, Cleveland Clinic said that by 2025, 50% of outpatient visits will be virtual, right? Wow. So, so historically, you've had the clinic and and places like that building, you know, bricks and mortar in in the Middle East and whatnot. Now they're thinking, hey. You know, virtual care can help us scale the globe, and and so you you just you see this radical transformation in in the way you know health systems are are thinking. So, um, and then you know just to you know for all your investors on the call or clients, I mean you look at the dollars that were invested in the first half of 2021, 15 billion dollars was invested in digital health. So a, just a, a massive sort of up and to the right curve in terms of capital going into private companies like ours, uh, you know to to sort of change the future of healthcare. I have one more question, then I'm going to shift to Leslie and then pull it yep. together. But uh, will this likely impact the pricing of medical services uh, and then the overall amount of GDP that we have to devote to healthcare, which I think is 10 or 11 percent, some huge number? Is, is this going to change either one of those uh, uh, metrics? Well, you know, I, I think in, um, look, I mean, there's a lot of regulation, you know, parity kind of, you know, in-person reimbursement versus virtual reimbursement. That's the big question in telemedicine is will will regulators kind of move, you know, move in that direction. Uh, you know, we think ultimately that's the right thing to do, but there's a lot of business models like ours that are actually just cash-based that exist outside of the healthcare system where you can draw a clear line on return on investment for big commercial uh, entities, commercially insured entities, payers, where accessing high-quality doctors at a certain price point is going to drive down costs uh, for you as an organization uh, or across conditions. Um, so, look, I, I think um, how the regulatory sort of landscape, you know, uh, evolves in terms of reimbursement, uh, I'm not really sure. 
I don't think, look, I mean, healthcare costs are through the roof. Um, they continue to go up the cost of healthcare. I'm sure you deal with that, Craig, in terms of thinking about your own, your own company. Um, but there are, you know, increasingly there are levers that are powerful in terms of, you know, driving down those costs while also creating a much better experience for people in, in healthcare. Great, thank you. That's uh, all terrific. So Leslie, on the leadership side, um, there's a, a 2020 CEO study uh, that you're in the middle of uh, with some key findings and shifts from the last one done in 09, right after the credit crisis. Uh, can you can we start with you talking a little bit about that? Because some of the things you told me there I found uh, fascinating and and reflective, fascinating in part because the reflective of shifts in society. It's not like the CEOs are necessarily leading the curve; they're they're following the curve and responding to new leadership challenges uh, that that exist. Yeah, uh, we you know for a little bit of the background, we started. The, the study was um, done in 2008, 2009, the first one really to provide an unvarnished perspective from sitting CEOs on what what they wish they knew before they got in the job. So we were focusing on doing um, development and preparation of CEOs and and looking at all the you know information in that space and really feeling that the voice that was missing was those of the sitting CEOs living it, doing it day in and day out. So we, we interviewed um, 27 sitting CEOs and got their perspective. We repeated that study, as you mentioned, um, we'll be releasing the findings um, in the next couple of weeks, actually. But the differences have really been, um, have been profound. Um, the emphasis on issues in the 2008, 2009, we're very much focused on I, the CEO, you know, the loneliness of the job, um, the pressures, the 24 seven nature of the demand, um, uh, the unending you know, governance challenges. It was um, dealing with a, a leadership team I inherited. It was very much an eye focused and, and the 2020 results are completely the opposite. It's all about we, it's, you know, I, my primary role is, is um, you know, to, uh, create a profitable, you know, a healthy company, a profitable company, a company that um, engages its employees, that you know, meets in customers that want to do business with them, that has a brand that stands for something. Um, you know, I am the architect of our culture. I own culture. One of the features of the prior study was um, staying in the swim lane. These CEOs say, I don't have that luxury. I have to be able to comment on things happening outside my industry, things that I'm directly responsible for. Um, I have a role in society to do that, to be a leader, um, to be authentic, to be transparent, to listen to truth tellers of the organization. Um, and to ensure my board is diverse and responsive. And it's it's just so refreshing and um, encouraging to really see this evolution in understanding and contemplation of the role. Um, I had one CEO and, and she said, um, I should, who has turned around the company, it was, it was a massive turnaround and she said, um, the only thing I get credit for uniquely is ensuring that we have an executive team capable of leading um, this organization. From there on, the rest of the success is attributable to the whole team and the organization. And it's my you know, executive team's job to engage the organization in that process. So really just a shift um, 
and it's just really encouraging to me and very refreshing. It's funny, I, I sent a note out to our firm, Rockefeller Capital Management, this week with some leadership changes. And uh, the lead line on the note was that um, my number one job is to put in place a great team that can lead this organization forward. And that's what you depend on me first and foremost for the, yeah. the exact same sentiment. Exactly. Which is so powerful because it just it really creates um, it just sets the tone for the whole organization to actively participate in the process. And that's really what employees are looking for. They're looking for engagement. They're looking for the opportunity to make a difference. Um, you know, I used to do research on high potentials. What what differentiated high potential employees from those that progressed at a more steady rate? And it was two two variables. One, they were given stretch assignments, and two, they had access to feedback or mentorship that let them know how they were doing. That was it. We we different. We tried to you know ferret out education levels and education and different things, but really the common denominator was that they were given the chance to stretch and they had access to feedback. So. You know, leaders who engage their employees actively, um, you know, are going to play right into the the development and retention and inspiration of those high high performing individuals. That's terrific, and I, I want to take this. I'm going to shift to Julian, but come back to you. I want to focus now on what employees are looking for. Uh, you know, whether it's entry level or or. In, in companies today and how that's different and how that's likely to shift going forward. And Julian, one of the things that we talked about, and this is, uh, you're seeing this in part because of the, the business that you're, you're running, uh, the challenges in hiring today. Um, and you had that anecdote, which I wanted you to uh, repeat on the tech company in Colorado that was trying to force everybody into the office every single day and their difficulty in, in, in retaining uh, talent and hiring engineers. but. Talk a little bit about that anecdote, but more broadly, what you're seeing in the work environment today. Yeah, I mean, so I can talk about it from a growth company perspective in a, yeah. in a really, uh, you know, aggressively growing sector, which is digital health. Um, massively competitive. Uh, I spend, you know, probably 60% of my time, you know, trying to convince talent to come, come, you know, come join us. Uh, but here's the amazing part is, is you know there there's a huge receptivity on the part of talented people to come to companies like ours right where you know we've been able to pull super talented people from you know uh, bigger companies who've who've got you know growth company experience uh, are going to add a ton of value for us um, you know the reality is though we're you know on, on the sales side on the commercial side in particular we're paying probably 30 40 percent more than what i would have you know two three years ago uh, you know, the especially in a high growth sector, you know, you you do, you know, commercial talent, i.e. sales talent is expensive. Um, and then on the engineering front, um, you know, I, I think, look, I mean, engineers are in demand. They can do if you're a good engineer, you can literally go to any company in the world. Um, mm -hmm. And so, look, I mean, the anecdote that I shared, Greg, on the, you know, the, the Colorado company, you know, I, we were actually trying to hire an engineer from this particular company and and it's a big you know it's a big company public company uh and and basically what uh, uh you know what i learned was that their cto walked into their ceo and says look you know if you don't give my engineers flexibility and you force them to come back in the office i can't hire engineers and and so you know when you think about the different functional responsibilities i'm mean, obviously salespeople are either on zoom or running around and all that kind of stuff but 
engineers need flexibility. Uh, they want flexibility. They demand it. Um, and uh, and if you if you force them into a block into a box, they're just going to go take another job because that's because they're they're companies like ours that are are very interested in in having them. Um, I will say also just the you know the I, I make a joke about Harvard Business School being a, a leading indicator for bubbles. Um, you know when 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 I graduated, it was hedge funds and and uh, you know a couple in real estate, and then you know 2008 happened, and you know we all know what happened there. But look, I, I think a lot of uh, MBA graduates, high caliber MBA graduates, high caliber undergraduates are are you know they all want to do product management roles. You know they want to go to tech companies, they want to go you know so it's a it's a different um, it's it's a really interesting space happening right now. Even in fintech, I'm sure you guys are seeing that. There's just a ton of activity in fintech uh, and so there's you know talent markets are very liquid uh, you know we've been lucky to, to keep our talent in place and be able to hire great people but uh, I know I've got to stay focused on that you know daily. <laughs> yeah. Well yeah. that uh, spot on and I was uh, sharing with you and Leslie but for the whole group uh, I recently was with a friend who's a senior executive at one of the big banks and he was talking about how they had found out that some of their engineers on the technology side were working for other organizations and the bank you know, maybe working 100 hours a week, but doing it remotely and kind of moving around as to who they're working for. And the CEO finds out and says, well, that that that's not happening. And he says, OK, well, we can shut that off and then you're going to have to hire new ones. And it's very hard to do that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, you know, it's a it's a fluid world. Leslie, it brings me back to you because, you know, you're not just working with executives on, you know, with CEOs on how to lead companies today. Uh, you're also working with um, uh, employees of, of all kinds on transitions, including, you know, and that's one of the services you're offering through us. So can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, uh, how it looks today and what people prioritize today and how that differs from two years ago? And then we can even, you know, we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about five and 10 years from now. But, um, uh, you know, my view on, on this is that, you know, Julian's point about uh, it happened in, in, in one year, what would have taken in 10? is changing things dramatically in terms of what people are looking for, uh, to, you know, that constitutes stimulating work and what causes them to stay in a job and leave a job. Yeah, it's um, it, it, what we're seeing. It, it, it's uh, the numbers are just sort of staggering. I think uh, uh, by month, I think in June, there were 3.9 million um, resignations. In, in July, the same. I think August, it was up to 4.6. So people are leaving, um, young people, we're talking now sort of millennials, they are leaving jobs at staggering rates, but they're not sitting home, <laughs> contrary to popular belief. You know, they're very entrepreneurial. Um, and, and to Julian's point, they're seeking workplaces that are dynamic, that are encouraging, that are empowering, where they have the opportunity to learn and grow. Um, you know, the research on why people why people leave companies is, is unchanged um, it, it, with the exception of one one area. The top reason is that there's they don't see opportunities to grow or develop. So companies taking a more traditional, more latent approach to developing developing talent. It's just not good enough. This what we the number one thing about this generation is they want to learn. They crave learning and they're very technologically savvy, so they can find it anywhere. So the idea that we're just going to you're going to be offered a course or you're going to be offered some development program that progresses at a slow and traditional rate, that's just not going to cut it because they'll circumvent that. They'll find other ways. They'll 
you know, they'll they'll do informational interviews, right? They'll ping someone on Instagram and and just you know, or or some other platform. And so, so the number one thing is they want to learn, they want to grow and develop, and that's the number one reason that they leave companies. Um, is that they don't see growth or or development opportunities. Um, the second is is that they don't feel appreciated, right? So they don't feel noticed and they don't feel appreciated. And we know that this generation in particular um, is is seeking that perhaps um, at higher rates. So you know, older workers, it's not that they didn't want it; they just got used to not getting it. This is a generation that that seeks it. They monitor likes. They they look for for cues of appreciation, of support, and 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 if they don't feel that they're getting it, even when it's present but not expressed, um, that's a very strong indicator to them that also contributes to to leaving. The third is peers. And there's two parts to that. The first is um, if they see people working alongside them, getting all the same benefits and rewards that they do, um, but perhaps not working as hard, not contributing as much, um, you know, that that's an intolerable thing. And also the idea of working with people that are difficult. So if there's if there's obstacles in their way to doing their job well, um, again, we're, I've been at this work for over 30 years, so I can tell you 30 years ago, people just sort of complained <laughs> about the coworkers that annoyed them. Now they're just saying, I don't need this crap. I'm, I'll go elsewhere where I don't have that as a barrier to my being successful. So that's the third. Um, the fourth is an interesting one, and I think I predict we're going to see an increase in this, and that's in what's what's called values clash. So when the organization is um, asking them to do things in a way that conflict with their personal values, their morals, their, their ways of working. But I think what we're seeing with this generation is actually an increase in this because now it's on issues of environment, sustainability and racial diversity. So I think that the area of sort of values clash used to be more narrowly defined, you know, um, in terms of how I'm being asked to represent products, services, how I'm asked to work with our clients. I think now the the challenge is going to for leadership is that the employees are have a much broader interpretation of it, which we saw evidence, by the way, in the CEO study of needing to be involved and present on issues outside of what might be the core business of the business. Um, and then the fifth area, top reason people leave companies um, is is to is really around issues of pay. Um, you know, 20 years ago it was I want to be paid more money. Um, now it's a little more sophisticated. Um, I want to be paid commensurate with a value that I'm contributing to the business. So people get frustrated when they see themselves. You know, the company's making um, you know a, a lot of money and and you know, turning over a lot of profits and they're stagnant um, and they feel that they're contributing based on, um, you know, the kind of work that they do. So those those are pretty powerful variables. The thing that I get excited about is all of them are under the control of how we lead and how we manage. So when you go one by one, do we appreciate our employees? Are we developing them well? Are we showing that we care? Are we ensuring that our comp systems, you know, are tied to things? Are we are we acting on issues of poor performance? Are we showing an intolerance for for employees that either based on behavior, you know, or or based on performance are, you know, we're quick to fire people, if you will, who are underperforming or not behaving in a way consistent with how we want to show up as an organization. So I, I think there's so much 
good news um, even in that because it still puts in our hands the opportunity to influence these things and you know julian i loved what you shared and i know greg this is so much a part of how you lead rockefeller you know when you put your employees at the forefront and you show that you care and you engage them in the work process i i think those are the companies that are going to be successful that was uh, i mean look uh, it's great as you're you know i'm, I'm taking through it because i'm leading an organization in addition to talking to the two of you but it's a paint by numbers on how to build an organization that, that uh, can be differentiated in terms of uh, attacking, uh, attracting, you know, I, I love the phrase, uh, the best and the brightest uh, from every conceivable background. So it, that was a, a, a tour de force around what matters. Julian, I'll, I'll let you jump in. I mean, you know, you, you heard Leslie tick through the five factors that she's looked at historically and, and how they are relevant in 2021. What, what's your reaction to that? I mean, you're leading a growth company and you yeah. work with tons of companies that are on the leading edge of what's going on in the digital health space. So that's going to attract young people and people that are looking for a, a, a smart, uh, well-run company. So what's your reaction? Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, candidly, I was taking notes as Leslie was talking, so I, uh, I appreciate the, the comments. Um, look, they're, they're dead on. Um, you know, I, you know, the, the concept of developing learning. You know, we have an inherent advantage, right? Because if you join a, a growth company, you're going to be able to, you're going to have to do so many different things. It's multidimensional. It's challenging. It's exciting. Um, so the you know that box gets gets ticks that gets uh, ticked there. Um, you know the don't feel appreciated thing is huge, right? And and uh, you know how do you on a daily basis and especially oh by the way, 75% of the people at my company uh, I've hired virtually, right? I've actually never met them in person, right? So uh, we we made a decision early on. Uh, given the tightness of the labor markets in in New York, to hire engineers and and others uh, in what we call centers of excellence around the country, uh, and we'll build our company that way in sort of a networked way, where we'll design ways for people to come together. Um, you know, our big challenge is, is maintaining that human connection uh, because it is different over Zoom, right? Meeting somebody in person is different than than Zoom. Um, so, you know, as, as a CEO of my company, I need to do this quarterly, get people together, make sure they, they sort of bump into each other and learn from each other. Um, you know, I, I think um, the values piece is a really big thing. Um, you know, people today, uh, you know, when we talked about in, in business school, leadership and values is kind of one of these sort of, oh, wow, it doesn't really, you know, maybe, but, you know, I, I think today's the young people really care. They've really thought about what their purpose is. You know, they they get inspired by our mission. Um, again, I can just speak from the Sumas perspective. Uh, you know, we want to leverage technology to make healthcare human again, right? So our mission is not about virtual care. It's, it's about, you know, making healthcare human and people can get behind that. They're excited by that. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, on the, on the pay side, it's always interesting for us, Leslie, because, you know, in growth companies, you do also have this advantage of offering, you know, equity based or option based compensation, which is really exciting for people. Um, and as a, as a CEO, you, you have to be really honest about what the net value of that option of those, those options are and what the upside is and the total comp package that you can put together for people. Um, so I look, I I think um, it's it's just wonderful advice on on sort of the future of of work and how people should think about talent. Um, I would just add one thing, which is you know historically I've seen a lot of people leave because their boss is, doesn't tick any of those bosses or any of those boxes. 
Um, so, you know, really thinking about your managers and your leaders and are they embodying the same principles that, that you are? Because at the end of the day, they're having the biggest impact on the people that are working underneath them. Um, so uh, general thoughts on yeah. great comments from, from Leslie. Yeah, well said uh, by you as well. And actually, you know, I, I spend a ton of time on this as well, uh, leading this organization because we've grown quickly uh, from around 180 employees when we, when we started in March of 2018 to uh, 850 today. And we've hired hundreds, Julian, virtually. Yeah. Uh, we do our business because there's a collaborative uh, process around ideas and problem solving for clients and clients come to visit us in physical offices. There's a physical presence that's required. At the same time, the tools are great uh, and we want to allow our uh, our colleagues to use the flexibility. So I'm constantly saying we need to be to come together to do the best work for our clients. But that doesn't mean somebody needs to in the like in the old days commute two hours each way, five days a week, like you know, in a robotic, challenging fashion. Uh, that would be silly given uh, the world we're moving into. Uh, and yeah. the values piece is also huge for our our colleagues at Rockefeller Capital Management. And I'm raising three. Uh, millennials, Generation Z in their 20s. And that generation, and credit to those generations, because my father, who's who is 88 and, and still here, but his generation, Brokaw, the greatest generation, as Leslie said, they did just take it on the chin. That's right. You know, and, and you know, you're going to do 50 years at Company X, you know, and I'm only seven years away, so I'm going to stay with it. Seven years is a long time to work in a place you're not stimulated and motivated by. That's right. Yep. So, you know, they did that, you know, in some ways credit to them, but in other ways, much smarter and more progressive way of, of working is being introduced on a broad basis. And we as leaders just need to uh, take it and, and try to implement it as well as we can, uh, which is which both of you are doing. Yep. Um, so yep. let's look forward. Uh, Leslie, let's go back to you. Um, you laid out uh, what what drives people today in, 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 in looking for jobs and staying in jobs and leaving jobs? What is it going to look like in 2025 and, and 2030? Let's start first with um, remote versus in an office. H how is this going to play out uh, in your eyes as, as we move forward? And Julian, I'm going to come around to you because, again, you've got multiple perspectives <laughs> on this. So let's start with in office versus out. How do you think that's going to play out? Well, I think the hybrid is here to stay. Um, I, I think that that's something that we're not going to see decline and we'll probably see in effect um, an increase in that. But here's the reality, Greg, 60% of the, the jobs performed um, are not able to be done remotely. You know, so 60% of, of the workforce doesn't have that option because of the work that they perform. They have to be in an office, in a hospital, um, in a meatpacking plant, in a, you know, whatever it is that they're in a customer facing role or responsibility. So, so that puts a lot of um, pressure on us to confront issues of leadership, right? Because that's saying that these are jobs that are, people are going to have to come into the workforce. So we have to pay attention to what their needs are. So I think we're going to see an increased use of contractors and temporary workers. Um, I think that we're going to see much like what Julian described as sort of a network virtual set of teams. I think the organizational structure is going to be blown up. I don't think we're going to have this org chart in the more traditional fashion. I think it's going to happen more in pods and more in groups. And um, 
I think it's just going to it's just going to look differently, but I think it's going to be even more important that leaders develop a sense of connectivity with people because they're going to be managing a hybrid workforce, some of whom don't have the option of working from home. And, um, you know, we're already leaning heavily into AI and to automation, you know, the rate of adoption of that accelerated dramatically during COVID. So I think we're going to continue to see increased use of of um, of both of those, you know, and so I think um, again, not to be a broken record, but I think it's still going to come down to leading well, sensitively, understanding the needs um, of individuals. And because here's the thing, and here's again the good news. Um, I think it's good news. You know, all the research on compensation um, continues to underscore that that money is a necessary but not sufficient condition to motivate performance. So a few of us would work if we didn't get paid at all, but money alone isn't enough to keep us somewhere, right? It's these other variables. Do I feel respected? Do I feel cared about? Do I feel appreciated? Is this a place I can grow and develop? Is this a place I can make a difference? So even tapping people to work on some of the you know, the more community-based things that the, the company is involved in could be much more reinforcing to somebody than, than a pay raise or, or some additional compensation because they're making a difference in the world and leveraging, you know, on behalf. So I think we're going to see a growth in a focus on foundations and, and the nonprofit activities of corporations because that's a form of engagement that's meaningful to this generation. They want to work, they need to work, but they want to do more. And if companies help to provide that avenue through the corporation and not require them to go outside the company to get it, I think they'll keep people longer because they can think of the muscle of your organizations in the community, right? It's huge. So if you decide to do some things that, you know, help first gen students or underserved, um, we're doing a lot of that in our Project U. We're focusing not only on, you know, on, on clients that might be more typical for Rockefeller, but also on first gen students, because we know that if they don't have interviewing skills, if they can't tell their story, if they can't conduct themselves in a um, in an in, in an interview or uh, an internship situation or even get an internship, that's going to affect their long term trajectory, their long term employability. So those core skills, and that's why we developed Project U, um, is that we know those skills are critical to success and opportunity down the road. So I think companies that demonstrate a concern for that and an engagement in that space are really going to have a higher rate of retention of the kind of talent they want to keep. Uh, Jillian, uh, you can follow on that and then tell us about um, what the healthcare world is going to look like in 2030. Okay, I'll 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 follow up. Uh, just one thought on on Leslie's great great commentary. Um, the the other thing to think about is, and this has always been my style, uh, but I, I do think it works for the future of work. Is is this concept of of organizing organizing incentives. Uh, and management around outputs versus inputs, right? Because, um, you know, I tell my head of engineering, I say, you know what? I don't care where you are. I don't care what you're doing, but here's what we need to have at the end of the at the end of the second quarter or third quarter. Um, and and he's earned my trust, and and he's done a wonderful job managing a, a bunch of engineers. But, you know, the the you can you can 
if you change that philosophy, then it really, you know, they can obviously you're checking in and you're guiding them to the output that you want to get them to. Uh, but it becomes less of a, hey, you got to get on the train for two hours, sit at the desk and put your hands on the keyboard input. And it's more about are you producing the outputs that are going to grow the company and also going to grow you, right? Um, so just a, just a thought. Um, so just switching to the future of healthcare, I think it's, gosh, it's such a dynamic time right now. I mean, there's been so many, as I mentioned, the, the billions of dollars invested in digital health. Um, the uh, And uh, even on a global scale, you know, I mean, I was on the phone at 1030 last night with, you know, GIC and Tomasic and, you know, talking about, you know, um, Asia and virtual care and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a real kind of, I don't want to call it a revolution because healthcare is slow, uh, but an evolution in healthcare that's going to happen over the next 10 years. Uh, a lot of it's going to be digital. It's going to be virtual. Uh, you know, everything from having your records on your phone. So you're going to, you know, you're going to have all your medical records on on your phone. You're going to be, be able to integrate that with any any you know EHR. Uh, you're going to be able to you know connect with your doctors. You're going to be able to do asynchronous messaging. Uh, you know, in the same way we do via WhatsApp or or sort of you know traditional texting. Uh, that's going to be a big piece of of healthcare. Um, you know, overall consumerization is going to continue to to, to drive change uh, because, you know, I'm a big believer, especially in virtual care, that the future is about quality, right? So right now we're sort of in this, you know, radical transformation phase. But, you know, at the end of the day, in healthcare, quality matters, right? In healthcare more than, I mean, a lot of things, but especially in healthcare. So, you know, the consumers are going to demand, uh, the companies that are gonna win are those that help the consumer uh, achieve a quality experience in healthcare, whether that's health systems trying to trying to attract them or companies like ours. Um, you know, I would say the other thing is data is just playing a huge role in healthcare. You know, I have a guy on my board who runs a you know multi-billion-dollar valued uh, data company. Um, there's such importance in terms of data on predictive analytics, how to target certain therapies, uh, you know, precision medicine, and 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 all that kind of thing. And then also measuring outcomes. So being able to say, geez, you know, why why is this happening in this way? Just really, you know, sort of. Uh, right now in healthcare, data is highly unstructured and messy, and I think over the next, you know, five to ten years, it will become much more structured and 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 you know, uh, useful. I would say. Um, Julian, just uh, can, I, can I jump in there on, on yeah. one thing you said because uh, you were talking about the information being on the device. There's a lot of dialogue around um, individualized healthcare, the ability with the information for for you to get a much more personalized uh, uh, set of recommendations. You know. Even even when you visit a doctor now, they you know you spend whatever it is a half an hour an hour. They 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 look and they say we think these are the issues or 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 not. Um, uh, but that's true because that's what the issues generally look like, as opposed to in this specific case, maybe you have this instead of that. How far away are we from that? Where you know you walk in and and you know you or I get you know a different recommendation coming off of. Uh, Maybe the same blood work because of your DNA versus mine. Yeah, no, it's it's exactly right. I mean, the, you know, look, personalization of healthcare is a massive trend. I mean, look at you know precision medicine, right? So, uh, you know, we we're actually we're working with a great precision uh, precision medicine company now in cancer, right? So rather than just you know the the shotgun approach of chemotherapy and radiation, it's really understanding people's DNA, 
understanding, you know, and then being able to target those therapies tied to, you know, specific disease categories. So I think um, that's a huge, and, and, and again, that ties into data, it ties into outcomes, it, it ties into, you know, people's medical history, their, uh, their history of present illness, all those things come together to create a, a, a picture uh, and then combine that with genomics and then targeted therapies and you get a much more kind of personalized, you know, health experience, uh, even on simp more simple issues. I, I agree with you. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, Leslie, I wanted to come back to you because you do so much work uh, with so many different uh, individuals, including early in the career. So uh, advice you would give to a young person today, like my children are 25, 23, and 21. Believe me, they get plenty of advice from me that they're, they're, they're not necessarily looking for every day. Um, but advice you'd give a young person today versus 10 and 20 years ago, uh, how has it changed? I think that the opportunities, the, the advice I, I would give to them um, is sort of tied to the fact that I think the opportunities are actually greater um, and it's really uh, um, some of it's the same, which is first be the best at what you do. Um, I've never seen uh, or, or rarely seen a person who is really the, the best in their category let go or fail to be promoted. So I think, um, and I think this is a generation that sort of gets that, but I think um, <laughs> I had one client who said to me, um, I might interview 10 young people and if I get a thank you note from one of them, I hire him. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, I wouldn't, um, you know, the idea of, of, of the importance of, of social grace and collaboration and, um, uh, you know, kindness, <laughs> it, it matters um, and it matters in the workplace also. So when I say be great at what you do, be the best at what you do, you know, it's it's not just the ring of your technical expertise because we see careers stagnate for individuals that are really good technically, but don't bring a broader team orientation or um, a social grace, you know, a way of interacting with people, which is why again on Project U, we include all of that. Um, part of what you're offering, you know, to your your folks, Greg, is is that foundational um, skill development because it matters. It matters for progression. And to sort of Julian's point and your point, there's with the increase in remote working, it's even more important that um, they show up. So you're not going to have this casual interaction in the hallway that's going to impress somebody. You're not going to have this opportunity to just engage with people. So um, be proactive and follow up and send send thank yous. Um, let people know. We, we had an intern with us and um, after the first group call, I said, you know, um, if I were asked to involve you again in a project, I would probably decline. And he goes, oh my gosh, I didn't do anything. I said, that's exactly the point. You didn't show up. You didn't say, thanks for including me, or you didn't ask a question, or you didn't. And he said, I know, but it was so interesting. And I said, you got to show up. You have to show up. So, and especially in a remote work environment, you got to find ways to show up. So I think the opportunities are broader and, and more vast, but I think that um, young talent oftentimes undervalues some of the critical things that um, senior leaders are looking for, which is proactivity, um, initiative, engagement, not just to their own benefit, but in recognition of others, in gratitude, 
um, and showing a concern and care for the for the purpose and the mission and the work of the enterprise. Well, that is so well said, I have to say, uh, and and uh, I, I, I'm not nearly as as uh, articulate in laying that out, but I think that's very good advice. Uh, frankly, as a career across a career, you can be as late in the career as I am and still, uh, you know, uh, implement those principles and people appreciate it and then want to work with you irrespective of hierarchy and title. Yeah. Um, but here I have a question from uh, uh, somebody who's both a client and a parent uh, of uh, millennials and Generation Z. Julian and Leslie, in the face of a lot of change and challenge in the world, you both sound uh, energized by your connection with the next generation of talent. What inspires you about this next generation of leaders? Julian, you can take that and then we'll come back to Leslie. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, wonder, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to work with a lot of young people, right? I mean, we have young engineers, we have, uh, you know, young folks who are, you know, running our member experience team. Um, they're so delightfully confident and diversely interested in different things, right? And I find that so inspiring, you know, like, one of them is is knows a ton about the subway system and and a ton about horticulture. Another is a uh, you know is is you know just jumped in a bike race and ran a you know or um, cycled a hundred miles and came in first just because she could right. And you know I, I it's energizing. It's um, I, I am never critical. Uh, I think Leslie, what the things that you talk about in terms of professional development, rounding out the edges, understanding how to be a professional, especially as you sort of think about you know aspirations in your career, are super super on point. Um, but I, I just find them to be so refreshing and they are purpose driven. They are mission driven. Uh, and obviously, it, you know, there, there's a there's a bias to sort of select Sumus if you are that way. But I, I do believe that to be the case. They really are purpose driven. They, they want to have an impact in the world. I think Leslie's 100 percent right on, uh, you know, they're not purely compensation driven. They are culture driven. Uh, they are impact driven um, and they are just uniquely fun to hang out with. <laughs> you know, Julian, I, I, uh, I, I do something I call a CEO roundtable every two weeks with um, 20 or 25 people who sign up first. And, and that's been quite successful at keeping people plugged into Rockefeller Capital Management, particularly in the remote times. Um, but one of the things I ask everybody to say on it is uh, a little bit about what they do. We've hired so many people recently and where they came from and something interesting about themselves. Yes. And the reason I do that is because there are incredibly interesting things that people do. If you hire the kind of talent that we're able to and fortunate to hire at Rockefeller Capital Management, these people are incredibly impressive inside and outside the office. And there's a broad range of dynamic, eclectic things from cooking to, as oh. you said, riding a bicycle or running or you know playing an instrument or giving back uh, to, to different philanthropic organizations. The things I hear, and, and I, I tell the, the people on the, on, on the screen, you know, on the call, that I want, I want your colleagues to hear it too, because then you can turn around and say, you are attack, attracting incredibly talented people. You're hearing it directly from the other people on the call. It's not like I'm saying it, but they're incredibly talented and, and purpose-driven. This is why you know, I, I always resisted. Now, partly I have three children who are millennials and Generation Z. But you know, some people said this, these, this, these generations are more whatever, something negative. And the reality is, I think they're grabbing the world and and their lives, and they're and they're saying, hey, I want it to be meaningful. How great is that? 
Leslie, yeah. you, you get to jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, they're 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 more racially and ethnically diverse um, than than, you know, prior generations. Um, you know, I think they feel empowered. They you know, this is a, a very independent generation. You know, there's a they're children of a higher divorce rate, daycare, um, latchkey parenting. They've grown up along a technological revolution, so they are innovative and expressive, adaptable, technologically savvy, learning oriented. I mean, it's just an incredible generation. They're they're efficient multitaskers. Um, they are the most well educated generation in history. And and they are this just by the evolution of of the whole technology they they are just learners, so there's just a blast. I mean, I I I just I love this generation. I I I they everything you've said I underscore. They're fun. They're interesting, and they're also blunt and very expressive. You know, they're they're they value. You know, they feel it's important to have their opinions heard and known. But in doing so, you learn more quickly what is bugging them, what's encouraging to them, uh, better ways to do things. You know, one of the things that we heard, um, one of the top ten things in the CEO study was the importance of finding truth tellers in the organization. Right, and how important it is to hear um, the signal and the sounds of your organization. Well, this is a generation that is comfortable providing and expressing those. So I, I love that as well. Yeah, I think that's terrific. Okay, I have one more question for both of you, um, and then we'll wrap up. And I got a couple more good questions from uh, uh, colleagues and clients, but I need to uh, pull together here. Companies, uh, we can leave Rockefeller out of this. Thank you. You've already uh, been quite complimentary. Companies that are pulling all together today that uh, are a great place to work. And Leslie, you you said this, and again, so well uh, when we were talking in advance, a great place to work and a great company because it can be a great place to work. And if it's not a great company, it's not going to be a great place to work for long. Right. Uh, but a great company right. that isn't a great place to work is not something that people want to be at either. So who's pulling it all together? Uh, Julian, you go first and then Leslie, you and then I'll wrap it. You know, Greg, we, we we talked about this in 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 call, and I and I really, um, you know, as a founder and CEO of a growth company, I'm just I'm sometimes I have blinders on, so I <laughs> less is probably better suited to answer this question. But um, you know, I've seen a lot of my peers who have had uh, sort of you know 15 plus years at Google uh, have a have a tremendous experience, just the the diversity of experiences, the growth of the company, the changing of of how information is processed, the the innovative stuff they're doing, and you know, biosciences to all, all the different things that, that Google does, uh, the flexibility they give their their employees. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, I, I would, you know, I look at, at, at sort of innovative technology companies. Um, I won't name them, but you know, there are t technology companies that are not that way, uh, that have a you know fear-based culture. Um, that are uh, perhaps not uh, not aligned with a purpose that is beneficial to society, and you and you do see the other side of the coin where people are are really fleeing those those companies. Um, so I, I I'll defer to Leslie on the the specific examples. Uh, she's probably better suited than than I am. <laughs> well, thank you, Julian. Now, Leslie, go ahead. No, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to follow on to you, Julian. Uh, you know, because what I. What I think is is what makes a great organization is is ones that start with being well led, purpose driven, profitable, um, you know. And I think any organization we could characterize. I mean, this is the downside of of marketing individuals, right? Tomorrow everything could change and blow up, and you'd say, wait a minute, you know. But companies that focus on um, 
on their their employees, their customers. You know, it's a lot of the traditional stuff, I think, Greg. But I think what's really different in today's is just the simple is the speed, the speed and the range of things. So you had companies that that gained huge um, strides. Some of my clients, I, I had one client, the CEO. He he went on a live. Um, uh, video, you know, cast employee company wide, um, you know, following some of the racial things, and he just started crying. And he, he, you know, this is a six six guy who runs marathons and is very fit and athletic and very masculine. And he just said, "I'm, I, it breaks my heart that our nation is confronting these challenges, and I, it has no place in our organization." Well, that rang through that entire company, and in many respects, it changed it overnight, right? Because of this vulnerability and this authenticity and this humanness, you know. But it also unlocked voices that came forward in the organization that 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 amplified things. Here's where I feel trapped, and here's where I don't feel heard, and here's where I don't think we're as good as we need to be. So. It's really the behavior and the culture of organizations that determine their greatness. And, and that can be so impacted by the actions of leaders or the inactions of leaders. I equally saw organizations that really, I would have said were in very good shape, but how they navigated some of the more recent issues, you know, I would say that they're struggling now. You know, people they're and they're shocked that people don't want to come back into the workplace and they haven't, you know, they rested on their laurels and they didn't stay sharp and communicative and engaged with their workforce during this time of real stress and transition and they're paying a price for it. So it really comes back to how the culture and how the workforce and workplace is managed, how customers are treated. Um, Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it. I said I'd uh, keep it to keep you two to an hour. This was fantastic. It's a tour de force on, uh, on on honestly how to build and lead a great organization in 2021. And it it is uh, arguably listening to the two of you and and even living it. The bar is higher, and it should be because the result for people should be better. Uh, and the people who are prodding and pushing and the millennials and Generation Z, good for them. They should have fulfilling, stimulating lives. Yeah. Uh, so fantastic to have you both here. Uh, thank you for your partnership with Rockefeller Capital Management. We're, we're proud to be affiliated with organizations led by individuals like yourselves. So much appreciated to have you here. I always end on a quotation, uh, as uh, all those who have listened to the prior 34 know. I do it actually at most events at our company. And we have the New York Marathon on Sunday. I'm not running this year, uh, but we have a number of our colleagues. I'm going to call two out. Uh, if there are others, uh, let me know and I'll call you out this afternoon at whatever uh, I'm speaking at. But Jason Rich and Sarah Mahan are running. Uh, so I have a, the famous Teddy Roosevelt quote. I will do the shorter version. But this fits with Leslie and Julian's uh, view of the millennials and Generation Z, which I'm uh, living in my own life, uh, that they're pushing the envelope. And Teddy Roosevelt said the following in 1910, and it's still uh, relevant you know, 111 years later. The only thing that, that we need to add to what uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt said is he talks about men. And fortunately, in 2021, this applies to everybody and has been extended to women. Uh, but for the sake of the quote, I will uh, read it as he said it. So he said the following. Uh, the credit belongs to the man who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement 
and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat, end quote. And the millennials and Generation Z are demanding to be in the arena, as that quote is referred to, and they should be. And at Rockefeller Capital Management, we're embracing that. So thanks to our clients, colleagues, other friends of Rockefeller for being here today. Leslie uh, and Julian, thank you to both of you. Terrific conversation. Have a great weekend. We look forward to seeing you soon. We'll continue to deliver this kind of uh, cutting edge intellectual capital uh, on a regular basis to all of you. Take care.